Hello, and welcome to La Cafe Mysteria, the best place in town for mysterious morsels. Here we talk about the unexplained, the paranormal, intrigue stories, creepy creatures, and historical mysteries. Basically, if it's mysterious, I want to talk about it. My name is Liz, and I'm your host. Welcome and welcome. Here in the cafe, we specialize in stories that will keep you up at night or at least give you something to think about when you're in the shower in the morning. Today is episode four, so grab your ticket and your best theater clothes, or on second thought, maybe just your second best theater clothes, because we are going back in time to jolly good England. The year is 1589, and the topic of today's tale is just hitting his stride. The location is London, England, and the mystery is the identity of William Shakespeare. Doubters began to question Shakespeare's identity in the 19th century. Academia has flirted with the theory of an alternate author of such masterpieces as Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet. But on September 10, 2007, Shakespearean actor Derek Jacoby and Mark Rylance, a former artistic director of Shakespeare's Globe Theatre, unveiled a declaration of reasonable doubt. The document asks academia to accept that there is room for reasonable doubt about the identity of William Shakespeare. Besides contemporary supporters for the alternate Shakespeare identity theory, writers Mark Twain, Charles Dickens, and Orson Welles also believe the typically accepted person, Shakespeare, was not who he really was. Now, this Declaration of Reasonable Doubt is online, and although it was unveiled in 2007, you can still sign it. I didn't sign it, but I did go and read it. So the crux of the problem is that a man who was so prolific with his pen didn't leave much evidence of his life beyond the page, making it difficult to pin down the Shakespeare literary identity to a specific real person. Most scholars believe that there was a man named William Shakespeare— who was born in Stratford-upon-Avon to an illiterate glovemaker and his wife. At 18, he married Anne Hathaway, not the actress, who was eight years older than him, and by 21, he had fathered three children. He next turns up in public records seven years later, at age 28, in London, without his family, working as an actor. He's later listed as a member of act, the acting troupe, the Lord Chamberlain's Men, and later the troupe, the King's Men. And he moved back to Stratford to re retire, eventually dying in 1616 at age 52. However, that is where the agreement ends about this particular Mr. William Shakespeare. Stratfordians, or people who believe that the man I just described is the William Shakespeare who wrote the greatest body of literature in the English language, they maintain that Shakespeare's name is printed on the title pages of many of the plays written during his lifetime and argue that Shakespeare's contemporaries mention him in their writings. Furthermore, they say that Tudor officials responsible for ascertaining play authorship attributed several works to Shakespeare, while actors who had performed some of his plays paid tribute to him in the years following his death and even helped arrange publication of his works. So that is... Some of the claims are some of the claims of the Stratfordians, or people who think the William Shakespeare born in Stratford is the same William Shakespeare who wrote all those plays that you read in high school. 
the anti-Strat 40 and say that there is no solid evidence linking this Shakespeare with the plays, poems, and sonnets attributed to him. In regards to his name appearing on the title page of plays, anti-Stratfordians say that there are only six surviving signatures, all spelled several different ways. The name on the title pages often appeared spelled as S-H-A-K hyphen S-P-E-A-R-E, which is one letter less than we spell it today, and it's hyphenated. Whenever we refer to Shakespeare today, there's no hyphen. The anti-Stratfordians claim that in Tudor times, hyphenation was a rarity, and scholars don't really have a definitive explanation for the hyphenated name on the title pages. However, other sources indicate that the in the Elizabethan times, censorship was rampant, and writers used pseudonyms that were pregnant with meaning so they could make a statement with both their writings and the names. Like, there could be someone named, like, James Tell Truth with Tell hyphen Truth. So obviously that's not James' real name. It's just a pseudonym. Um, or, this is quite interesting, the pseudonym Curry Knave. I have no idea what a Curry Knave is. Um, if it has anything to do with curry, like the spice and the food, I don't have anything to do with it. I am not a fan of curry. And Knave, isn't that some kind of insult? So, okay, who knows? Curry Knave. But in other contexts of Shakespeare's life, such as his local business dealings, and on a monument to him in Stratford, the name is not hyphenated. And in his, in his will, his last name appears three times. Twice, it's spelled S-H-A-C-K-S-P-E-A-R-E, and once as S-H-A-K-S-P-E-A-R-E. And some believe the name may have even been pronounced Shakespeare. So with the various spellings of the name, there is no way to know which way is correct and which name was associated with the man typically acknowledged as the famous playwright. They also argue that though contemporaries do mention Shakespeare, they only mention him as an actor, not as a writer. They also don't include any other identifying information such as birth or death dates, family members' names, or any other key life milestones. Now, one of the more interesting things that I came across, and I honestly never heard about this before, was the monument to William Shakespeare that exists in Stratford. So the effigy on the monument depicts a writer. It's pretty much like a bust, maybe from like um, the belly button up, um, carved into a wall. So the effigy on the monument depicts a writer, but the monument doesn't look like the one that was originally put up in the 1600s. A sketch from 1634 shows a man with a droopy mustache holding a sack, but no pen or paper like the monument of today. So if you look at the monument today, he's holding, there's like a desk in front of him, and he has a quill in one hand and paper in the other, and it looks like he's writing. The records show that the monument had been repaired at one point, and during this repair, the depiction of Shakespeare was evidently altered to depict a writer. The inscription on the monument never says that the person, Mr. Shakespeare from Stratford, was the author or the playwright William Shakespeare. The monument doesn't mention any of his plays or any lines from his poems. It never mentions theater, plays, or acting. 
In fact, the inscription has a curious line of Latin that has been the subject of much study, and it compares the person buried there to be a, a pillion in judgment, comparing him to the Greek king Nestor of Pylos. Um, Genio Secretum, or Socrates in genius, and in artistry, a Virgil, alluding to the writer, or the writer Virgil. However, comparisons to these three individuals is odd. Nestor was hardly the most talented judge in Greek mythology known to those in the Renaissance. In fact, he was most commonly known for giving bad advice that led to poor outcomes. Um, for instance, he told Patrocles to disguise himself as Achilles, which leads to Patrocles being killed by Hector. So the most famous judgment of King Nestor was to advise someone to disguise themselves as someone of greater ability. The comparison to the genius of Socrates is a little weird because Socrates wasn't a poet or a writer. In fact, in the Republic, Socrates disdained poetry and plays. So why would this viewpoint denigrating poetry be identified with Shakespeare, the author of hundreds of poems? Why not compare him to ancient playwrights like Sophocles or Euripides? That seems to be a more fitting comparison or tribute. Um, so for what was Socrates famous, you might ask? Um, in fact, he really didn't gain fame for something that he wrote, but rather being the mouthpiece for another author, in this case, Plato. So after analyzing the first part of the Latin portion, scholars have said that it can be summed up as disguised as a person of greater ability and famous for words written and put in his mouth by another. So is this saying that the person memorialized in this monument was someone who is under, under disguise and just merely a mouthpiece for someone else's words? And the final part of the Latin phrase is Arta Moranum, comparing Shakespeare to Virgil, an epic poet who is often compared to Shakespeare's rivals rather than Shakespeare himself, which is kind of weird because why bring up a poet connected to Shakespeare's rivals and memorialize him on a memorial to Shakespeare? It seems so strange with all three of these, these individuals in the Latin text really not having a clear connection to William Shakespeare, the writer. However, there was another Maro, M-A-R-O, who was known to people in the Renaissance. It was a writer who was also known as Grammaticus or the Grammarian, so Maro the Grammarian. And he wrote parodies of scholarly writings using the form of classical writing, but filling it with outlandish tales and stories and deliberate twists and mistakes only to be presented as facts. So kind of like a Renaissance version of the Babylon Bee or the Onion. So it looks real, but once you actually get into it, you realize it's just a big twist, big twist to the story. So only those who are truly well-read and studied would be able to catch these fabrications and understand the humor, like it's an inside joke between some well-read scholars. So could the reference to Maro on the inscription not be the Maro known as Virgil, but the Maro known as Grammaticus? So therefore, adding that piece of information to the mix, the Latin inscription could be interpreted as 
using the arts of outlandish claims and false attribution to claim authority and authorship, even though all educated readers would recognize this as fraudulent. So, in a nutshell, here lies someone who disguised himself as someone who was his better, someone who gained fame through the words of another author placed in his mouth, and who made outlandish claims that were obviously false to those who knew their texts. So the inscription on this monument has been the subject of great study. Obviously, it's not forthright saying, here lies William Shakespeare, author of Hamlet and Romeo and Juliet, etc. Loved by all, missed by many, anything like that. It was, it's this cryptic, cryptic inscription, half in Latin, half in English. It's been a subject of great study. And the anomalies in the Latin lines are many, specific, and puzzling. So either it was written by someone who didn't know Latin, or it was deliberately crafted by someone to provide a clue to the identity of the person memorialized there, knowing that it's not just Bill Shakespeare from down the road in Stratford, that it could be someone else. One of the most prominent arguments against Shakespeare, as we know it, is the evident disconnect between the life the man Shakespeare lived and the ones he wrote about. The Shakespearean canon shows a wide grasp of literature, language, French and Italian court life, foreign travel, astronomy, art, medicine, horticulture, military and navy terminology, strategy, falconry, equestrians, and royal tennis all things that a small town, poor, uneducated actor would know little about. They argue that records of the time indicate that Shakespeare probably only received a local primary school education, and he did not go to a university. None of the universities at the time indicated his name on any of their roll calls, and he would likely not have learned the languages, vocabulary, and grammar used in Shakespeare's plays. Both of Shakespeare's parents were likely illiterate, and it seems as if his surviving children were as well. Evidence exists that his daughter Judith signed with a mark when serving as a witness for a neighbor, and his daughter Susanna could only write her name very poorly. So why would such an accomplished writer, an educated person, neglect his own children's education, leaving them to languish in ignorance while he's off in, in London? It just really does not make any sense. Um, the letters and business documents that's, that do survive are mundane records of transactions, their real estate dealings, their investments. We know that he sued over a debt as small as two shillings, and once a London acquaintance sought his arrest for fear of death, and in 1598, Shakespeare was accused of hoarding grain during a famine, prompting a neighbor to call for his execution and that he be hanged on gibbets at his own front door. So that's what we do know about Will Shakespeare, the man from Stratford. The first 28 years of his life are described as the lost years, because that's really all we know. Several of those, um, those uh, examples about suing over small debts and hoarding grain. So the first 28 years of his life are the lost years. There is no record of his life between his youth in Stratford and the first record of him in London. So how he acquired the knowledge displayed in his works is unknown. It would not be impossible for a commoner to become educated. However, in the time period, there was a lot that was documented. 
I mean, it was the Renaissance. People were writing. They were recording things. They were investigating things and doing experiments. So there has to be some trace of this man, a commoner, becoming educated in some classroom, purchasing some books, something like that. However, if he did become educated, he did it without leaving a single trace. Mark Anderson, an author of the book Shakespeare by Another Name, writes, quote, the greatest manhunt in literary history has turned up no manuscripts, no letters, no diaries. There are documents that concern his career as an actor and theater manager, but nothing that suggests a literary life. There is no evidence that he ever left England, so if that's true, how did he gain the worldly wisdom and experience portrayed in his plays? If he didn't travel or go to school, could he have obtained his knowledge from books? However, books and paper were expensive in that time. The average person wouldn't own books. Additionally, there is no record of any book that Mr. Shakespeare owned or that is known to have been in his possession. Furthermore, in his will, he lists a number of gifts to family and friends, but not a single book or manuscript. And this is from a great writer. But curious enough, in his will, he did leave his wife his second best bed, which is weird. So to combat this morsel of information, it is discussed that wills are for specific bequests, not the itemization of every piece of property. Furthermore, the play troops, in this case, the king's men, would own the play scripts, not the author. So the play scripts would have stayed behind in London and used until they fell apart or were written on the backs of or what have you. They wouldn't have gone back to Stratford with Shakespeare. Um, so Shakespeare wouldn't have had, had them to bequeath in his will. And in regards to the bed, it is believed that household articles and furniture would have gone to his beneficiaries, including his daughter, Susanna, and her husband. So perhaps the best bed went to her. Um, so the second best bed would have to be itemized for his wife so that it wouldn't be given to Susanna as well. Um, professor of English and Visual Studies at Harvard University and the author of several books on Shakespeare, including Shakespeare After All, says that the culture wasn't one to save paper or even use paper due to its scarcity. So letter writing and diary keeping were unusual, especially for common folk. And as for plays, once they were printed and performed, there was no reason to really keep the manuscript. Additionally, plays were not considered to be real literature at the time and probably wouldn't have been saved. They were seen more as trashy pulp fiction. Stratfort Stratfordians, those people that believe Will Shakespeare is the same as William Shakespeare, dismissed the argument that Shakespeare wasn't educated, saying that a basic education of the time would have been enough for Shakespeare to write his plays. Additionally, Stratfordians emphasize that most of Shakespeare's plays were based on previous works, and Shakespeare could just fill in the gaps of his imagination. Leading Shakespearean scholar Jonathan Bate says that it's a modern image of the writer as someone who puts his own experiences into his plays. That's just not how plays were written back then. We know that the man Mr. Shakespeare spent documented time in two locations, Stratford, his hometown, and where his family apparently lived while he went to London to write and act. He said to have retired in his late 40s and returned to Stratford, never to write a play, a poem, or even a letter. There was no record that he ever put on a play in Stratford or that any of the townspeople viewed him as a writer or poet. 
several people who seemed to know him and who left records never seemed to have associated him with the author William Shakespeare. So when he died in 1616, nobody really seemed to notice. If Mr. Shakespeare of Stratford was the William Shakespeare, wouldn't someone have been written? Wouldn't something have been written about his passing? And people who dispute Shakespeare's identity continue to rattle off questions. Like, why are virtually all of the plays set amongst the upper classes, and how did the author learn of their ways? Why is only one play set in Mr. Shakespeare's Elizabethan England, and why are so many plays set in Italy? How did he become so familiar with Italy and all things Italian that even obscure details in these plays are accurate? And why did he never mention Stratford and never write a play that seemed to reflect his own life experiences? So while pouring out his heart in the sonnets, why did he not once mention the death of his 11-year-old son? So, so many questions that dispute Mr. Shakespeare and William Shakespeare's relationship. But why should we care about the author who asked, What's in a name? Would a rose by any other name smell as sweet? Both sides argue that knowing the identity of the writer is essential to understanding the plays. The drive to uncover the true identity of Shakespeare would probably not be as great if the legacy of Shakespeare as a literary god did not manifest in the 18th century. So during his time, Shakespeare was admired and respected, but not thought of as unique, says Jonathan Bate, a Shakespeare expert at the University of Warwick, not far, far from Stratford. He said the idea that he was a completely different order of genius from all his contemporaries only begins in the mid-18th century, with the British Empire taking off and literacy growing. The transition from common literary, common writer to literary god became official in 1769 when actor David Garrick held a lavish Shakespeare Jubilee in Stratford. So that's whenever the whole mythology around Shakespeare is this wonderful literary creation came about. But in his time, he was just another writer. Other people think that Shakespeare is a pseudonym, that he didn't really exist as William Shakespeare, that he was someone else using a nickname to disguise the true identity. So if Shakespeare, the man from Stratford, is not the writer, who is? Sir Francis Bacon, a respected essayist and philosopher, is a popular candidate for William Shakespeare. This theory surfaced in the mid-19th century, and proponents of this theory are called Baconians. And they believe that Bacon wanted to avoid being tainted as a lowly playwright, but he also wanted to be able to write plays that jabbed at the royal and political establishment in which he played a key role. He wanted to be successful in other areas of his life, like writing essays and being a philosopher, and being a playwright would hinder him in that goal, because being a playwright was seen as being um, a very dubious crass and lowly occupation. So playwrights were not taken seriously. Baconians argue that philosophical ideas originated by Bacon are found in Shakespeare's works and debate whether Shakespeare's limited education would have provided the scientific knowledge, knowledge of legal codes and traditions that are evident in some of the plays. 
And in the 19th century, supporters of the Baconian theory claim that there are ciphers and codes hidden in the text of Shakespeare's original plays that revealed the writer's identity as Bacon. However, I couldn't find any examples of those. The second theory is that Christopher Marlowe is actually William Shakespeare. This is known as the Marlovian theory, and it supports the idea that Christopher Marlowe, a celebrated playwright and poet, is William Shakespeare. This theory also first appeared in the 19th century when proponents argued that there were similarities between Marlowe and Shakespeare's writings. Marlowe and Shakespeare share humble beginnings, but Marlowe earned both the bachelor's and master's from Cambridge University, rendering him more educated than Shakespeare and more apt to write about such diverse topics that appear in the Shakespearean plays. Marlowe's mysterious death occurred in 1593, and the first work under the name Shakespeare went on sale about two weeks later, and that play was Venus and Adonis. Some believe that Marlowe, who was believed to have been stabbed in a tavern fight, faked his death to avoid arrest pertaining to anti-religious writings and espionage in the Tudor court in which he was involved. So he continued writing under the pseudonym of Shakespeare to avoid being arrested. So going along with the Marlovian mythology, the name William Shakespeare was truly a pseudonym that was deliberately concocted. The name William came from the German Wilhelm, a compound name of Vilio or Willio, I'm going with the V sound of the W, which meant determination and helm meaning protection. So determine protection. Then the Greek gods, Apollo and Athena, were considered to be protectors of the arts. The name Pallas Athena literally means spear shaker or shake spear. Athena was often depicted as holding a spear and wearing a golden helmet. So the entire name William Shakespeare would have been derived from the Greek gods who were protectors of the arts, which is what Marlowe was seemingly doing after his death, quote, unquote. Several women have also risen to the forefront as possible Shakespearean candidates. In the 1930s, author Gilbert Slater declared that Mary Sidney had adopted the nom de plume Shakespeare. Slater cited a list of feminine attributes in both subject matter and writing style, as well as the long list of strong convention-breaking females that appear throughout the plays. Mary Sidney, the sister of poet Philip Sidney, had received an advanced classical education and had spent time at the court of Queen Elizabeth I, giving her ample exposure to the royal political intrigue present in so many of Shakespeare's plays. Additionally, she was an accomplished writer. She wrote a variety of religious works and, quote, closet plays, which were small plays written for small private performances. Women frequently used the format of closet plays because they could not openly participate in professional theater. If you recall, during Shakespearean times, men did all the acting, even dressing up as women on the stage because women could not act in the plays. Furthermore, Miss Sidney was an arts patron and ran a prominent literary salon and provided financial backing for the production of some of Shakespeare's plays. So Mary Sidney is, is possibly Shakespeare. And a second female candidate is Emilia Bassano, a London-born daughter of Venetian merchants. She was one of the first published English poets. Historians believe that Bassano's family was Jewish 
and this is evidenced by the inclusion of many Jewish characters and themes in Shakespeare's works, treating them more positively than by many authors of the day, indicating that Bassano may have been the author of these plays. And now we have Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. De Vere is by far the most popular candidate for the identity of William Shakespeare. This theory was first presented in 1920 by Thomas Looney, an English writer. Looney believed that the depth and breadth presented in Shakespearean works could not have been created by someone further down the social ladder than a nobleman. Shakespeare was the son of an illiterate glove maker and is reputed to not have a college education. So to Looney, that Shakespeare, the Stratford Shakespeare, and the playwright could not be the same person. Instead, Looney believed the dramatist, William Shakespeare, to be Edward de Vere, the 17th Earl of Oxford. De Vere himself was a poet, dramatist, and patron of the arts. Additionally, many of the dedications of Shakespeare's plays are to actual or potential husbands of Edward de Vere's daughters, including, mentioned by name, the Earls of Southampton, Montgomery, and Pembroke, making it seem that at the very least, de Vere knew Shakespeare if he wasn't him. De Vere stopped publishing poetry on, under his own name shortly after the earliest Shakespearean works appeared, leading Oxfordians, or people that claim that the Earl of Oxford is Shakespeare's real identity, um, claim that he used the name Shakespeare as a front to protect his position. Additionally, de Vere was very well versed in history, particularly ancient history, which would make him well suited to write dramas like Julius Caesar. Additionally, he was known to have a working vocabulary of more than 17,000 words, including nearly 3,200 original words. So this is fascinating to me because one of the most interesting things about Shakespeare that I remember from school was that his works included over 400 original words that have worked their way into our modern vocabulary, including words like batty, bloodstained, bump, love letter, and money's worth. So could all these original words really have come into being from the mind of a man with just an elementary education? Richard Whalen, author of Shakespeare, Who Was He?, say that the Earl's identity as the real Shakespeare had to have been known to a number of theater insiders, like actors and theater managers. Common people probably wouldn't care who wrote the plays they attended, but those in the theater world would, and would silently judge a nobleman who was stooping to write farce, but really, but wouldn't really make a stink about it. Like they would know that he was doing it and maybe razz him in private, but it's not really a big deal. Oxford supporters provide proof, including similarities between De Vere's life and Shakespeare's plays and poems, meaning that a large part of the Shakespearean canon would have to be biographical. They argue that in Hamlet and King Lear, they hear the voice of an aristocrat, not a commoner. Wayland says, the plays demonstrate a keen, intimate knowledge of how people in a royal court or a government bureauc bureaucracy think and operate. Yes, great writing is always a creative process, but a writer's best works are products of their own experiences. Furthermore, author Mark Anderson says that Hamlet contains elements drawn from Oxford's life. He believes Polonius is a caricature of Oxford's father-in-law, Lord Burghley. Burgley, like Polonius, once sent spies to check up on his own son. 
Ophelia is reminiscent of Burgley's daughter, and Oxford himself can be seen as Hamlet in some parts. However, all is not well with the Oxfordian theory. De Vere died in 1604, leaving 12 plays penned by Shakespeare, yet unwritten. So if De Vere was the true Shakespeare, who wrote those 12 plays after he died? But alas, supporters of the Oxfordian theory maintain that the plays written after 1604 were written by collaborators of De Vere, which may indicate that De Vere, if he was William Shakespeare the writer, wasn't the only writer. So as of the recording of this podcast, there is no answer to the question, who wrote Shakespeare's plays? Some argue Mr. Shakespeare, you know, the one from Stratford. Others just as ardently claim it's someone else. While still others crow, who cares? Will knowing who wrote these plays really change anything? Why is it important? What difference does it make? As for me and my take, I first came across the disputes about Shakespeare's identity in my ninth grade literature class. My teacher passed out an article from, get this, from Games Magazine, going through some of the evidence discussed here and first introducing me to the idea of an alternate Shakespeare. When I was in college, I took a class called 16th and 17th century non-Shakespearean British dramatists. Yes, a total mouthful. Um, but we read, read um, poems and plays by people like Ben Jonson and Christopher Marlowe. And what I learned was about the prolific nature of these writers. They had to churn out content quite quickly to appease the masses and always have something new to put on the stage in all these theaters. So even though we didn't directly talk about it, like it makes sense to me that maybe several collaborators would contribute to a work that would be attributed to one person, or maybe all these writers were swapping stories and consulting with one another for inspiration or to fill in missing details. I do find the lack of a paper trail, however, by one of the most notable writers of English literature, weird. So what, he only wrote when he was in London, and when he returned to Stratford, he suddenly didn't write anymore? Not even write a letter? The volume of plays, poems, and sonnets indicate that writing consumed a large part of his life, so it's odd to me that he would just stop. Also, if he left Stratford to go to London to be a playwright or an actor or whatever, leaving his family behind, wouldn't they tell people that he was in London and what he was up to? Would he not write home or, if his family was illiterate, write to someone else to pass on the message? I mean, surely people in Stratford would have known what William Shakespeare, Anne Hathaway's husband, was doing in London, and whenever he returned, welcome him home, maybe asking him to share a poem or a play or two. However, there's no evidence that, that he even put on a play or recited a poem once he came back to Stratford. So while I don't think I completely know who Shakespeare truly is, I find all the evidence and arguments compelling. My, my best guess is that the author of the works that bear the name William Shakespeare was likely two or more people working together, with Mr. William Shakespeare of Stratford being involved somehow. If he went to London to be an actor, maybe he was an aspiring writer and gave people some ideas about plays and eventually collaborated with, with people and maybe even wrote chunks of the plays. I think Mr. William Shakespeare of Stratford, the actor and theater manager and whatnot, whatever he was in London, was involved somehow. However, I'm not sure that he wrote everything, every word that is attributed to him. 
If I had to choose someone as the likely chief author, I think I would choose Edward DeVere working with others simply because he had the knowledge and education that would allow him to write about many diverse topics and he would have access to other noblemen's noblemen in the court in order to get details about maybe some other foreign courts or what they were doing um, in their exploits to help him write about the many diverse topics in the plays. He also had the money to leisurely write under a pseudonym rather than having to rough it and, and write to stay alive. So I hope you enjoyed this deep dive into the identity of William Shakespeare, and I will talk to you next time.